1: Welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In much of Canada and America, it's hot. Deadly hot. Our environment editor finds that heat waves disproportionately hit already disadvantaged countries and even neighborhoods. The good news is that many of those deaths are preventable. And the rice dish known as biryani has been a staple of Indian cuisine for centuries. But with the country's ruling Hindu nationalists whipping up sectarian sentiment, biryani's Muslim origins have made it into a politicized dish. First up, though.
2: It is declared that Mr. Jacob Gelleychegis Azuma is guilty of the crime of contempt of court for failure to comply with the order made by this court in secretary of the Judicial Commission of Inquiry into allegations of state capture, corruption and fraud in the public sector.
1: Jacob Zuma, who ruled South Africa from 2009 to 2018, is heading to jail. He's subject to a number of legal tangles, but it was his refusal to show up for a trial looking into state capture the gutting of institutions to serve private interests that was his undoing. The verdict against him has split opinions among South Africans.
3: President Zuma going
4: to jail, I think for me, uh, it's not a good thing. I disagree with that. In my point of view, I think it's justice taking its course.
1: Putting Mr. Zuma behind bars while other trials and inquiries play out is a hugely symbolic step in a broad and deep effort to root out corruption in the country.
3: Yesterday in South Africa, the law finally caught up with Jacob Zuma.
1: John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa correspondent and is based in Johannesburg.
3: The former president has, for more than a year, been dodging appearances in front of an inquiry into corruption when he was president from 2009 to 2018. and. So frustrated has the judge chairing that inquiry been that he's referred Mr. Zuma's behavior to the constitutional court, the highest court in South Africa. And in response to those petitions, yesterday, they sentenced the former president to 15 months in prison for contempt of court and for his, quote, scurrilous and unfounded attacks on the judiciary.
1: So what's the backdrop to the actual accusations of of corruption here, though?
3: It's hard to keep up when it comes to Jacob Zuma. The inquiry does not have anything to do with the other trial that he is currently facing, which dates back to an allegedly corrupt arms deal that he was part of in 1999. The state inquiry into state capture, chaired by Judge Raymond Zondo, is all about the myriad ways in which during the Zuma presidency, government departments and state-owned enterprises were looted, and the institutions that were meant to stop that looting were taken over by people keen on doing wrong. And some people have likened it to a kind of second Truth and Reconciliation Commission after the post-apartheid hearings chaired by Desmond Tutu. It's not as grand and it's not as emotional as that, but it has really laid bare some of the failings of the South African state And at its heart is obviously this figure of Jacob Zuma. And the fact that he has held this commission in disdain repeatedly is what ultimately frustrated Judge Zondo, and more importantly for Mr. Zuma, earned the wrath of the Constitutional Court.
1: And so what now then for for Mr. Zuma?
3: The court gave Mr. Zuma five days in which to hand himself over to the police. If he refuses to do that, the police have another three days to imprison him. The police minister has said that he will carry out the orders of the court, somewhat quashing any fears that there might be people within the ANC that are keen to somehow dodge this ruling. So one can never be too sure because the former president has a history of narrow escapes. But at 79 years old, Mr. Zuma is facing the possibility of some time behind bars in South Africa.
1: And what about the the wider political ramifications of the sentence? I mean, we spoke just a couple of days ago about how badly the country is is handling the pandemic and and how much that falls on the, the current president's shoulders. What does this mean for him?
3: If we go back to 2018, when Cyril Ramaphosa took over from Jacob Zuma as president, he announced a new dawn. He said that he would stop the rot that had taken place under his predecessor. And that meant both issuing some economic reforms, but also repairing some of these institutions that had underwent such damage under Mr. Zuma. And for the most part, South Africans, I think, have been frustrated with the progress under Mr. Ramaphosa. They see him as broadly having his heart in the right place, but not really being able to follow through on that, partly because he is ultimately the president of the ruling African National Congress as well, and is subject to all manner of factions and internal party politics. However, in the past few months, he has made some progress. The ANC has suspended Ace Mahashuli, an ally of Mr. Zuma, from his position as Secretary General of the party. And now, even though Mr. Ramaphosa isn't responsible for this latest decision, it proves somewhat that his method of dealing with the past works, albeit slowly. And that method is ultimately trying to rebuild those post-1994 Mandela era institutions and letting them do the work on behalf of South Africans.
1: And so to your mind, is that a sign that the damage that happened under Mr. Zuma's rule is, is being repaired?
3: Slowly, perhaps. But I think there's a broader issue here. And the Consequence of the decision by the constitutional court yesterday is perhaps greatest for South Africa as a whole, as opposed to the political fortunes of Mr. Ramaphosa. Remember that under apartheid, the rule of law was applied either cruelly or selectively, based on the colour of one's skin. And then in 1994, with the transition to multiracial democracy, South Africa built this admirable architecture of legal institutions and it wrote a quite inspiring liberal constitution that has been praised the world over. And the Zuma era threatened to tear it apart, and it got quite close to doing so. But every time you have me on this show, I'm often talking about the downsides of South Africa, but one of the great upsides is the strength of its non-state institutions, whether it's the media, charities, civil society, or in this case, the judiciary, in particular, the constitutional court, And I think it's important to remember here that this verdict is not just an important legal one, but it's also a reminder to the rainbow nation of some of its founding ideals.
1: Thanks very much for
3: joining us, John. Thank you, Jason.
0: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 we'll see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: In the Northern Hemisphere, the turn into summer has brought unprecedented heat waves that have killed scores, perhaps hundreds of people. It's hard to know for sure. On Sunday, Canada's all-time high temperature record was exceeded by a lot when the village of Lytton hit 46.6 degrees Celsius, about 116 Fahrenheit. The next day, that record fell again when Lytton reached nearly 48 Celsius. But it's not just Lytton. Much of North America is baking.
2: All right, heading into Wednesday, many of us are still going to be hot and humid. The heat wave continues along the I-95.
0: Millions of people in the Pacific Northwest don't have central air in their homes or apartments, making this heat wave that much more dangerous for a region that just isn't built for this type of heat.
1: Experts on climate change talk about both mitigation, trying to slow it, and adaptation, essentially learning to live with it. Now that the climate has clearly changed, it's time to adapt and to save lives.
2: The entire Pacific Northwest, in fact, from Washington State, Oregon, all the way up into Canada, is currently experiencing an extraordinary heat wave. Temperatures are in the mid-40s across the entire region.
1: Katrine Bragg is The Economist's environment editor.
2: In Portland, streetcar cables are actually melting in the heat. It's not just in the Pacific Northwest. Temperatures are also extremely high in the northeast in New England at the minute. And Siberia, for the third year running, is experiencing record-breaking temperatures as well.
1: And heat waves of this severity and, and this kind of breadth are becoming more frequent.
2: Yes. As we all know by now, greenhouse gas emissions are pushing global average temperatures up around the world. And as the mean goes up, so do the extremes. And so naturally, we are seeing temperatures that used to be rare become more normal and extreme events are also becoming more extreme with the increased frequency and severity of these heat waves, we're going to see more impacts on human health. So heat waves are, in fact, quite deadly events. They impact human health far more than the more visible events like tropical storms, hurricanes. Hundreds of thousands of elderly people die from heat waves every year. A lot of those deaths happen in India and China, but not only in India and China. In Europe, a remarkable heatwave in 2003 is estimated to have killed 70,000 people.
1: Those are striking numbers. Why are heatwaves so lethal?
2: Heatwaves don't tend to kill directly, and for this reason, they're often referred to as silent killers. People don't just die of heat. They die of other conditions that are aggravated by the heat, so respiratory conditions, heart conditions. Because of this, attributing deaths to heat waves can be difficult. And the statistics on how many people die or suffer health effects as a result of heat waves are difficult to come to. Heat waves are also linked to droughts and extreme fires, as we've seen in recent years in California and in Australia, all of which comes with their own impacts and potentially deaths as well. When you have a heat wave, the news imagery tends to be of people crowding into pools and onto beaches, and it doesn't sort of convey that sense of emergency in the same way as some of these other events.
1: Well, you had mentioned that the numbers are highest in India and China. I mean, why is that? Why, Why the concentration in some places?
2: Poorer countries are going to be affected more by heat waves just because they tend to be along the tropical belt where temperatures are getting hotter faster and to higher temperatures. There's also infrastructure and preparedness issues. There's social issues in some of these countries. Slums with tin roofs and high densities of people are obviously not where you want to be sitting out a heat wave, and they're going to be far more deadly in those kinds of environments. There's also between countries and even within countries, even within America, different populations are going to suffer the effects of heat waves in very different ways. So disadvantaged neighbourhoods, for instance, will often have fewer green spaces. And it's very well documented that parks and generally urban treed areas are a fraction of a degree cooler. Poorer people also are perhaps less likely to have air conditioning at home. They are less likely to work in air-conditioned offices. In America, the minority populations are more likely to have many of these pre-existing conditions, so respiratory conditions and cardiac conditions. And so they're more likely to suffer from the health impacts of heat waves.
1: So with the incidence and the severity of these heat waves, the number of deaths going up, what can be done to mitigate things?
2: So the good news is that quite a lot can be done, and even better news is that it doesn't necessarily have to be expensive. In cities and urban areas, you have what's known as the urban heat island effect, where because everything is paved over, you have less vegetation, you get this sort of heat bubble in urban areas. And you can counter that simply by expanding the areas that are parks and that have trees, tree-lined streets, etc. Very simple measures like painting walls and roofs white can also lower temperatures. So a lot of this is very straightforward, but requires city planning requires infrastructure. You're not going to be able to run the air conditioning unless you have a heat resilient electricity grid. You're not going to be able to have cooling parks with sprayed water unless you have reliable water supply. There is no question that we are going to see more of these events in future. In fact, if you were to cut emissions tomorrow because of the lag in climate effects, you would still see an increase in frequency in heat waves. So countries need to adapt to heat waves. On the other hand, allowing runaway global warming where temperatures get hotter and hotter and hotter is not an option. Climate change does need to be addressed at the root cause. Greenhouse gas emissions absolutely need to be slashed.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Katrine.
2: Thank you, Jason.
1: For more on how deadly heat waves could shape humanity's future, listen to the latest episode of our forward-looking sister show, The World Ahead, where we hear from celebrated author Kim Stanley Robinson. You could be indoors, in the shade, without your clothes on and a fan on you, and still the combination of heat and humidity would be enough to kill you. Find the world ahead from your preferred podcast purveyor. The slow-cooked mix of rice, meat or vegetables, and spices known as biryani has been a fixture of family life for hundreds of years on the Indian subcontinent. According to Swiggy, India's most popular food delivery app, more than one is ordered every second in the country. But now the dish has become embroiled in a battle across India's political landscape.
4: In recent years, some Hindu nationalists in India have politicized biryani.
1: Alia Chawab writes for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine.
4: They started to use biryani and the term biryani eater as a slur to refer to the country's Muslim minority.
1: So let's wind back a bit. Where does biryani come from?
4: So the origins of biryani are disputed, but most believe it was created during the Mughal Empire, which was the Muslim dynasty that ruled the Indian subcontinent in the 16th and 17th centuries. There's one popular version of events which says that Mumtaz Mahal, who was the wife of the fifth Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan, supposedly created the dish after visiting some of her soldiers in the barracks and finding that they were undernourished. She then instructed her kitchens to make a meal that was simple and nutritious for them, and they created the modern biryani Some people do contest this and say that the Mughals didn't invent it and versions of the rice dish were found in the region before they arrived, but it's generally accepted that they at least popularized the dish in the Indian subcontinent.
1: But now you say it's gone from a well and widely loved dish to a politicized one.
4: Yes, it has. Because of the dish's Muslim origins in recent years, biryani and specifically the phrase biryani eater has become a sort of all purpose slur to refer to anyone that's critical of India's ruling party, which is the Parathia Janta party who are a Hindu nationalist party. The biryani slur itself has roots in the aftermath of the Islamist terror attacks in Mumbai in 2008. At the time, the sole surviving attacker was put on trial and a rumor was spread by the prosecutor that he had rejected his prison rations and demanded a plate of mutton biryani instead. That later turned out to be false. But at that point, why feed them biryani became a national talking point, sort of talking about the apparent soft treatment of Islamic terrorists by the authorities
1: But the term has spread far and wide from that.
4: Yes. In recent years, India has seen some of the biggest protests in its history. In late 2019, the BJP government passed a controversial citizenship act that was widely seen as being discriminatory towards Muslims. And demonstrations followed, and BJP politicians tried to discredit the protesters by making endless references to them eating or being fed biryani. At the time, one BJP politician even tweeted a video as... "Quote unquote" proof of biryani being distributed at the protests. It seemed that the goal was to paint the protesters as being distinctly Muslim and to imply that they were being bribed and perhaps organised. Actually, another BJP politician at the time called Yogi Adityanath compared the protesters with terrorists and boasted that while opposition politicians had fed terrorist biryani, the BJP government would feed them bullets.
3: Biryani, or ham kya Goli.
4: Again, earlier this year, when disgruntled farmers took to the streets to protest against a series of agricultural reforms, BJP politicians claimed that they had been bribed with biryani by Muslim extremists. And once again, video circulated on social media of biryani being eaten by the protesters. And at this point, in the eyes of the BJP, it seemed that biryani consumption had become synonymous with traitorous intent.
1: I mean, it's a terrible fate for a dish that uh, allegedly was invented just to, to feed some hungry soldiers.
4: Yeah, and it really is a shame that the dish has been politicized, because although it's been used now to fuel divisive identity politics, the irony is that there really is no better metaphor for Indian multiculturalism than biryani, because... There are dozens of variations of the dish, depending on what part of the subcontinent you're in. And every region, often every household has their own recipe and often like to playfully spar over whose version of the dish is better. And that really should be where the debate is. For most people in South Asia, including myself, my Pakistani family, biryani really means togetherness. It's kind of the default dish for social gatherings because it's ideal for making in large quantities. So perhaps it's time to reclaim the term biryani eater.